Welcome to another episode of The Corner Booth, the official podcast of RestaurantOwner.com and Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. Today, the restaurant industry is changing faster than ever. Learn from successful independent restaurant operators and other industry leaders as they share best practices that will help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business. And thanks for joining us for another episode of Corner Booth. I'm Chris Tripoli with RestaurantOwner.com. I'm Barry Schuster, editor of Restaurant Startup and Growth, the magazine of RestaurantOwner.com. And we're going to uh, feature a special guest today. We've got Larry Ryback, the CEO of Jim and Nick's Barbecue with us. And so this is going to be a very interesting story for our listeners to hear about concept development operations, as well as multi-state location management. So Larry, welcome to Corner Booth. Thanks for coming on. That's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So Larry, uh, we tend to try to start these conversations with getting some background on our guests and how they got into the business. Our readers and members, they, they want to know, hey, who, who is this person talking to us? Uh, so you could kind of sure. lead us into what got you to the point you are today. Yeah, I, I've never done anything but this, uh, but restaurant business. I had a paper out when I was a kid. And then, you know, I was 15, I started in the restaurant business, like a lot of people. You know, I started mm-hmm. as a dishwasher and kind of worked my way up from a dishwasher to a prep cook, a line cook, a trainer, a sous chef, a chef. And so my formative years was all, you know, all of my restaurant experience was back of the house. And then as I get a little bit older and, and I moved into management, I kind of mm-hmm. learned front of the house and financials and, you know, learned to become a, a leader and stuff like that. So that's what I've been doing since I was 15. And I would, you know, wouldn't change it for the world. I really, I really love the restaurant business. And this concept that you have now, or maybe multiple concepts, I want to hear about the entire scope of your business. What, what led you into that? What was motivation? What was the inspiration to create the kind of restaurant you have now? You know, Jimmy next to me, for me, was it was all about, it's just a differentiated brand. In some ways, it's kind of old school. And that um, we, you know, the brands never cut any corners. Everything's made from scratch every day. We smoke all of our proteins in-house every day. We get people in there before the sun comes up. And something like we, we like to say internally is that, you know, greatness begins before the sun comes up. So we've got people loading smokers every day at five o'clock in the morning. We do it several times a day. And um, so it's a really, uh, I call it legit barbecue. You know, it is the mm-hmm. real deal. Um, and, but the commitment for us doesn't stop there. You know, it's um, and a lot of barbecue concepts. Are, it, there's a heavy focus on the proteins, but a little less so on the, on the scratch, on the, on the trimmings or on the sides. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just as passionate about the side dishes or we call trimmings as we are about the proteins. And so um, we keep the menu fairly simple, um, but um, it, like we do it the old fashioned way. We do it from scratch, every restaurant, every day. We don't have a freezer or a microwave in any restaurant. And that was appealing to me because I kind of grew up in kitchens. And so I could kind of identify with that. And I loved that. And the other thing that was really special about the brand that attracted me was the culture, the people. It's just really genuinely good people that love to serve. And I think what attracts most people into the restaurant business that stay in the restaurant business uh, is that it makes them feel good to serve others. And I'm kind of saying it. And that's the way I felt. Like when I created, if I was cooking, if I created a dish to serve someone, I really cared about and I still do about what, how that person experiences what I did. Like that's my wife calls it my love language. <laughs> and uh, when I, what I kind of identify with Jim and Nick's, you have all of these people, this entire culture that cares about serving others and it makes them feel good to make other people feel good. Um, and I love that. And I just don't, you know, I don't know that you see enough of that in our business anymore. So uh, that made it really feel like a truly special brand to me. And then like anything else, you, you know, you do, you do your homework on, on how the restaurants run in multiple units and you get to know, like, you know, what's the ownership behind it look like and, and what would they, what kind of partners would they be? And as I got further into the, my diligence on Jim and Nick's and um, Roar Capital Group and Phil Hickey, who's the chairman, I mean, it's just, it kept like checking every box for me because it was mm-hmm. phenomenal brand, great food. I loved that it. it wasn't too big. Um, I love the size of the company now. I think it's just really uh, something you can get your arms around and really perfect your craft in every restaurant before you get into growth. 
So I liked the size of the company. And again, the, everything that it stood for, the, the ownership group, my partners, just it was really an amazing fit. Still is. When did Jim and Nick start? Boy, started, uh, I want to say 27 years ago. I, I may be off by a little bit, but um, and started in Birmingham, Alabama. We're still based there today. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we've got, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, please, uh, Larry. Go oh, no, so we're still a strong presence in Birmingham. We've obviously grown from there, grown quite a bit in Atlanta and Nashville. And we're in North Carolina. We're in South Carolina. We have one in Florida. Um, so, uh, but no, uh, Birmingham's home. Where's your North Carolina unit? Uh, we have three in Charlotte and then three in kind of greater, uh, Charleston, Savannah. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, I, I didn't mean to jump in there, but Chris, uh, I, I wanted to make this comment. Um, once again, we're talking to somebody who's running a successful operation, successful concept, and we could lead with all kinds of topics. We could lead with finance. We could lead with menu. We could lead with marketing. We could lead with operations, which hopefully will get around all those things. But then you have the leader of the organization leading with culture people first as a differentiate as a differentiating factor to the point that that's what they're leading with. And are we hearing this from every single successful operator we've been talking to for the last, oh, sure. gosh, how long? So I had yeah. to kind of bring that up because again, it kind of underscores your, your people first um, philosophy, which you've been talking about as long as I've known you. It is, it is. And I just think that it's good if the listeners kind of take a note that here we are listening to somebody who's leading a successful company, planning growth, developing people, expanding the brand. But when he himself was looking to join the group, when it was much smaller, he was assessing it based on people first. So, you know, staff are are attracted to places where they feel like they're going to fit. They're going to belong. Um, and guess what? Leaders are looking for companies where they feel like it's going to fit and I'm going to belong. For sure. It's a people business. We're all human beings. Yeah, we're all just, I mean, we're all human beings. It's not, it's funny how fast life goes and how fast your career goes. And the way I, what attracts me to a restaurant today is no different than what attracted me to a restaurant when I was 16 or 17, you know. Well, you know, oh, go ahead, Barry. Well, you, you know, I mean, bar- barbecue is um, such a popular concept everywhere. I'm, I'm in North Carolina, so there are people who are raised here who are weaned on barbecue. But the, the thing I, I'm really looking forward to talking to somebody like yourself who really knows that sector, because aside from just the popularity and the appeal of it, one of the things that occurs about barbecue, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is the inventory management and planning seems to me just tougher than any other restaurant because you got to prepare those those proteins before people even show up on a certain day. And I want to hear, you know, what you've learned about how to do this in a profitable manner, how you plan ahead, how you know how much inventory you should have, how you avoid waste. Because I think that, at least I'm guessing, there's some – there's some skill and techniques there that I think any operator could benefit from. And there's tremendous shrinkage. See, that's what, that's what he has to deal with. Many of our other guests still have the same issue, prep, production, planning, inventory, et cetera, but they don't necessarily have the shrinkage. um, And that has to kind of go into the margins. Larry, how do you do that? Sure. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting. It, this was a very different thing for me to get my head around when I first joined the brand. And, and as I said, I, I grew up in kitchens. I, I thought I really understood how to, you know, how to understand how to analyze a P-mix and write a prep sheet and do all that kind of stuff. And this takes it to a whole new level of complexity because things take eight, 10, 12 hours to cook. And so for you to really understand what your P-mix looks like on a shiftly basis, on a daily basis, so you can plan accordingly. Like it, there's a lot of science that go that has to happen and a lot of math that has to happen before the art can happen. And uh, you mentioned waste. I think the one of the more challenging things with barbecue is if you get it wrong and you're overcooking briskets or pork butts, or like it's, you know, one brisket's a, not a small amount of money that you're wasting. So you really mm-hmm. want to, you know, you don't want to run out, but you don't want to overcook because it doesn't reheat well. Um, 
and that's why you, you see a lot of restaurants, especially barbecue restaurants that, you know, they kind of have the when, when we're out, we're out position, which is different than, you know, most of casual dining that hates to 86 anything. Um, barbecue restaurants, like you kind of internally, we have a saying that we, um, we run out so we don't sell out. Um, and we, but we do our best to never run out. So it's a, there's a lot that goes behind the planning of, um, how much to load in the smoker in the morning, how much to load in the afternoon, what to load at night for the next day. And, um, yeah, it's a really, and it, it has such an impact on quality that, uh, you, there's, there's not a lot of margin for error. You really have to get it right. So, like I said, there's a lot of kind of, you know, math and science that happens before the art can happen. If I'm getting too nerdy on this, just push back. But I'm really interested in in how you do that planning. Is there any technology? I'll even go as far as throughout a term like predictive analytics that you're taking advantage of to kind of know, hey, you know, on on Tuesdays on on third week of July, we just tend to have X amount of traffic, um, it, it, you know, or is it really just you just have enough experience? You just kind of know what you're doing, and and you just make good decisions um, based on. Yeah, I mean, got. It starts with the analytics. I mean, we've we've gotten we've got PMix by shift by day, so we know how much you know. We could say how much brisket we've sold for the last six Tuesday lunches, mm-hmm. and it kind of starts there. And then there's a there is a you know a layer of uh, I would call it, you know, experience or gut that gets, that gets put into it on top of that. Like if you knew there was something particularly happening in any area around you, then you'd make an adjustment to what the predictive, you know, PMIX analysis would tell you. But we always start with kind of the math and then, but we also know that, you, you know, there, but there is a, you know, um, there's a layer of gut or a layer of experience or um, that's kind of the art part that goes into it, you know, um, and we trust our operators. You know, we do a lot to, we like to think we hire the best. We, we pay at a really high level and um, we've spent a lot on time and training and ops is, you know, our, our core to our DNA is just nuts and bolts operations. Well, let's talk about uh, operations, if you don't mind. Uh, maybe walk the listeners through how a unit is structured. Are you lunch, dinner? Do you have like a brunch thing? Do you have a bar, banquet room? Sure. And what's the management structure like? Well, so we are we're multi uh, sales channel. By that I mean we are uh, we obviously have dine in. We're at lunch and dinner uh, seven days a week. No breakfast, no brunch, no late night. But lunch and dinner seven days a week. Um, but the multi sales channel is we do dine in. We do takeout, we do third-party delivery, and we do drive-throughs, which is kind of a, a, a rare thing in barbecue world, certainly a rare thing in casual dining. It's always been part of what we do. Um, we're trying to take it to the next level. So we're kind of, we're, we're, uh, we're on sort of next-gen uh, uh, drive-throughs with uh, double lanes, larger canopies, handheld POS, team members in the parking lot, some of the things you might see at a Chick-fil-A, for example. Um, that's, but so wonderful. that's wonderful. I don't know, you know, Barry, that's something I wasn't expecting to hear. Um, Cause yeah, drive through in barbecue setups. I agree with you a little rare. Um, the barbecue company I spent years with long, long ago, we tested some drive throughs Of course, that was long before we had the technology and the double drive through that you have today. So I commend you for that. Um, what kind of percentage of sales do you run through the drive-through? You know, it's about a third of our business, roughly. The newer, we just opened one that's actually pushing north of 40%, which was, you know, shocking. But I think the, the, the double lane, the walk outdoor, the, you know, the handheld POS, having team members in the parking lot, like it's a, it's a different animal. So that it's gotten considerably larger. But I also think it's gotten larger because of, you know, the impact of COVID. Um, and I, you know, we were... Uh, certainly wasn't by design, but we were well prepared for um, for the impact of COVID because we had already built uh, a pretty solid reputation for doing off-premise, both uh, takeout and drive-through. At the time, we didn't have third-party delivery. We introduced that. Um, but we, we were able to weather the storm well because when we lost our, dyno, our dine-in business, it, was, it didn't cripple us. I mean, it certainly increased our, uh, our takeout and our drive-through, but um, it, we were... Uh, 
we were really fortunate as a result that, of that. That's a huge benefit. I, and, and how many total units are there? Because this is a lead into to a secondary question. How many total units sure. do you have? Uh, 38 today. We're going to open two more before the end of the year and then another uh, six or seven next year. Okay. So you're a large uh, multi-unit organization. Um, I don't know if we can even call you an independent at this point, but um, still it occurs to me, you know, that drive through real estate um, in terms of traffic and location is a pretty competitive piece of land still with all of those, as you mentioned, like the Chick-fil-A's and all the QSR chains. Um, is, is, it, is it difficult to find those locations? Is there bidding wars that go on? Because, you know, gosh, Dunkin' Donuts, McDonald's, you know, the whole landscape, um, you have 38 units. These are companies that, you know, have a thousand. Um, is that even a factor or are you just, it's it just a really non-issue? You know, well, we're, we build a restaurants that are a little bit bigger than QSR or, or fast casual, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So we're not real, we're not looking for the same real estate necessarily as a Dunkin' or a Starbucks or, or a lot of other drive-through players. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in that regard, it's helpful. The um, what we look for from a real estate perspective really isn't any different as a result of drive-through. Um, I, I get that question a lot, and it's really not. I mean, when I think about the sort of the profile of uh, what we look for in a site, it isn't really any different. There are specifics that we need to be able to physically. Uh, execute a drive-through, I mean, lot size and stuff like that. But the but the characteristics of a market aren't any different. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe um, you could share with us a little bit about not not just maybe the site finding too, but what are the other dynamics that go into planning growth? Most of our listeners are people that might be much smaller, one, two, three units, hoping one day, of course to be sure. multiple concepts or multiple city operators. Uh, what would you tell them, obviously, uh, to build a proper foundation for growth and the other steps in addition to real estate? That's a great question. Um, you know, I think I'd start by saying, don't, you know, don't get over your skis. Don't look to grow too much, too fast. Uh, make sure that your base, the, the core uh, restaurants are really healthy operationally and financially. Because when you grow, it's going to put a strain on your system. It's going to put a strain on people. So you're, you're, going, to, um, you're going to look for your best or most capable people to do more, uh, to help you open restaurants and to help you to grow, which is likely to put a burden on your existing restaurants because you start moving people around. So first and foremost, make sure the base is healthy. Um, secondly, gosh, I mean, I don't think this is rocket science, so I'm not going to give you anything that probably... Uh, you know, new or different, but you got to have great people. Um, and our biggest focus over the course of the past year was retain the people we got. Let's make sure that we're really taking care of people, uh, both from a, you know, a, a leading by our, with our core values and um, living our, living the culture that we espouse, but then also making sure that our comp is, is competitive. We don't want to lose anyone uh, that we spend a lot of time, effort and money training. Um, so that's been helpful because if you're, bringing a lot of people into the organization because you're getting ready to grow and you've got a leaky bucket, meaning so you're losing people uh, in the existing, you know, restaurants, um, you run the risk of diluting your culture really fast. I think there's always a little bit of risk of culture dilution when you're going to, when you bring a lot of people on board to grow. Um, so spend the, you know, the time, effort and money to train people um, and to make sure that they really understand the culture. I'm personally a, a believer of, you know, hiring for um, hiring for attitude, training for skill. You've probably heard that before, but really hiring people that have the shared core values that we have, uh, and then make sure that we go above and beyond and training them the right way. And it's not just the the tactical day to day training, but they really have to understand the brand. And there's a sort of like a, a, you know a cultural assimilation process that has to happen. So. If you're going to train somebody for, let's say you train a manager for eight weeks or whatever you train them for, don't just throw them to the wolves after eight weeks. Like what, what does it look like to take them out of their, they're hired and onboarded and they've been trained on all the different functions and components of the job. But then how do you make sure that they uh, are fully assimilated and kind of get their sea legs under them and so that they can be effective in the jobs that you hired them to do, but so that they also have, 
that that new job of theirs is a reward as a rewarding one. With 38 units, is there opportunity for uh, enthusiastic, um, good employees to grow with the organization coming up from maybe uh, somebody who's a uh, entry level line job to uh, management? Is there, is, is there that future opportunity offered as, as a benefit of, of working with you? Absolutely. Like I'm, I'm a product of that. I'm mm-hmm. incredibly passionate about that. Um, I wouldn't have the job I have where the jobs I've had before that if, if, if someone hadn't uh, taken a chance on me and taken me under their wing. And, and so I think it's our job now as leaders to give back and it's our job to bring people along. And frankly, it's necessary. I think there's, we, we try to keep a, a, what I consider to be a healthy balance between growing people intern- internally and then bringing in experienced help from the outside. And for us, it's about um, 60% internal and about 40% external. My guess is as we, as we get into growth in the next year or two, it might, you know, it might shift the other way. Like we might have to bring in a little bit more external experience to help us grow because we're going to grow really fast. But I don't think you want to get more than 60% external, I think, because you run the risk of just really diluting your culture. Mm-hmm. You know, I really hope that our listeners are making note of that because I know there's many people that uh, that we've gotten to know very well that are, you know, interested in growing. And when we start talking with people, typically the first thing they'll bring up is, well, you know, I'm ready to grow, but I need money or um, I'm ready to grow, but I need uh, the, the real estate. And I really like your comments there that, that of course, you're going to need that. I mean, you need to raise capital and you need to find locations. But the first thing is really build your bench strength because your operations are going to be strained. And so I hope the listeners take note of that, that that the successful expansion seems to come from uh, successful operations. No question. No question. You know, Larry, the food trend people, and I'm sure you you follow the trade press. A lot of them like to make you believe that. Uh, particularly younger diners, they're all shifting to plant-based and that gets a lot of buzz. Uh, for me, it's very, as somebody who does patronize barbecue places, it's very difficult to under, to even visualize how that even fits in with that concept. But then I do understand that modern concepts really don't want to lose any business just because one member of the party isn't, uh, it doesn't eat meat. Uh, does, does that figure into anything that you do in terms of your menu development or, um, as I might think, Hey, listen, if meat's not your jam, then this is probably not your restaurant. You know, that's another great question. I think, um, you know, and it's not having an impact today. It doesn't. And I, I think we should keep an eye on it and let's see how real or how large this demand becomes Mm -hmm. before I do anything. I think there's a risk with any restaurant that try to be all things to all people. Mm-hmm. Um, and because when you do that, typically anyway, the menu gets more broad than you can really execute well. And I, I'm guessing you guys have seen just like I have the number of restaurant companies or concepts in the last 20 years that, that have a back to the basics initiative. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We've all seen that, right? So right. they, they tried to grow, they grew too much. They tried to be all things to all people. The menu got 20, 30, 40% bigger, got way too complex, couldn't execute any of it well, or drove labor costs up, drove food costs up. And it didn't ultimately didn't do what they wanted it to do. Um, and they have this sort of, let's go back to what we originally did thing. Um, I'd like to avoid doing that. And just un- like, a, we, un- we, we understand who our guest is. Um, we've... Um, we try to be really disciplined with the decisions we make on what we you know, choose to do or not do, or, you know, trends that we chase and stuff like that, because it, um, if you run the risk of stressing your system or stressing your ability to execute at a high level and compromising your ability to do the things that your guests love you for every day. Um, so it's just sort of the, you know, the be aware of the unintended consequences of trying to do too much. Mm-hmm. So you're working with beef, obviously pork, I would imagine, uh, chicken as well. Yeah. Um, turkey. You into other meats. There you go. Yeah. Turkey. And then do yeah. you do game or other things? No game. We've done uh, sausage in the past and it's something that we're, we're thinking about doing again. Uh, we do, we do pork in a couple of different forms. So we do brisket, 
we do chicken, we do pork butt, we do ribs, we do turkey. Um, for the holidays, we'll bring in a whole hams and smoke whole hams. Uh, we've done sausage in the past. And um, so I do think there is, uh, I need to keep the menu fresh. Right. Uh, and I want to make sure it doesn't sound like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. Because I do think if you don't do anything, if you don't innovate in any way, or you don't introduce new products, you run the risk of things getting getting stale before too long. I just think you got to be really careful with what you choose and what you chase, uh, and really understand what your who you are and what your brand is. You know, before you think about. Like for us, before I thought about doing plant based, I'd I'd almost want to re reread my brand positioning and like does that does that make sense for me to do or not do? You know. Mm-hmm. On this question is probably because I've been in the Carolinas too long, but uh, barbecue uh, can be very regional and, uh, you know, people will break out in fights and in terms of which, you know, what's better, South, North Carolina, Tennessee, whatever. But what I'm getting at is uh, barbecue does seem to be regional. This is your wheelhouse. So you tell me what's going on. But um, does your menu shift um, uh, regionally? to uh, leverage maybe regional tastes in barbecue. I know Texas is a very brisket-oriented uh, region, uh, Carolinas, pork. Um, if that question makes sense at all to somebody who actually does yeah. this for a living. Look, um, it makes a lot of sense. And I, you know, when I joined the company, one of my concerns, frankly, was like the regionality of barbecue. And it's one of the, one of the things I wanted to get my head around before I joined What's interesting about barbecue at Jim and Nick's and barbecue coming out of Birmingham is it's kind of like Bir- Birmingham or Alabama barbecue is kind of like born in the crossroads a little bit. And it has, it's, it's influenced by the best of Texas or by the best of Memphis. And, and so what I, what was originally a concern for me would, you know, was would, would our barbecue play in the Carolinas or not, or like, how would we fare in Memphis? And um, because it's influenced in subtle ways by different places, um, I think people accept it for just being good barbecue. And mm-hmm. we, I get, we get almost no feedback about, I like more sauce on my barbecue or why don't you have a mustard-based sauce? Or It's like non-existent. And I think what we do try to pay homage to, to the, the parts of the country that do it great. Like our brisket is straightforward salt and pepper, Texas-style brisket. And we wouldn't, I can't imagine doing that another way because that is, Texas brisket is the best. And so our ribs are a little bit closer to what I guess I, I wouldn't say it's a full Memphis style. It's not quite as wet or as sticky, but similar to that, just kind of a caramelized sauce rib. Um, so we just try to do what we think is the best barbecue from the best regions possible. It seems to work for us. You know, Barry, this kind of fits. Um, and, you know, and Larry, I'd love to get your comment on this. On a lot of successful companies growing from small independent to then becoming a expanded oriented brand saying that national isn't necessarily their goal. They want to just be a very strong regional brand. I'm thinking now that the, the independent uh, who started out with just a truck um, and then one little taco stand and became Torchy's tacos with, I don't know, 65 to 70 units now. But I remember him always saying that, um, uh, the, today, brands don't have to be national. Think regional and and you'll win. Um, yeah. But a gourmet burger guy did that not too long ago, saying that, you know, that he wants <clears throat> to do just a particular region and be very successful in that. So is that pretty much your expansion program, Larry? For sure. Yeah, like right now, our plans are southeast. We have no, and I, honestly, I don't, who, who knows where this, you know, where this goes in five years, but in my estimation this is a southeastern brand um and today there's just so much great real estate for us in the southeast that really i mean southeast loves barbecue more than anywhere else in the country um the southeast loves barbecue so because there's so much white space available for us there's no need to tackle territory that you know maybe barbecue affinity isn't quite as high it's just not on our radar today like our our plans for the immediate future to grow out the markets that we're in. So kind of grow out greater Birmingham, grow out Nashville, grow out Memphis, um, heavy growth in Atlanta, um, growth in the Florida panhandle, grow out both Charlotte and then Charleston, Savannah. And then if we, uh, that's more growth than <laughs> that's enough growth for us for several years. 
And so we're not even thinking about new territory right now. Like I love the thought of going to Raleigh. It's not on my radar today. I love the thought of maybe going to Jacksonville at some point, not even on my radar today. Mm-hmm. Well, in the, in the Southeast is, uh, is probably booming as fast as any mm-hmm. other part of the country right now. So not a bad place to be focused on. Yeah. I hear what you're saying, Chris. Um, and then another thing that started occurring to me as I'm, as I'm listening to Larry, you know, in terms of, Hey, listen, we're going to have great examples of barbecue, um, wherever we are. Um, you know, I guess some of my questions regarding the regionality of barbecue, a little bit old school, because as we've discussed with a lot of operators with the food channel and with just greater understanding of various cuisines, um, I guess a lot of people are telling me that the people are much more open minded. And, and, you know, even if they grew up on mustard based pulled pork barbecue as kids, um, hey, I'll try some. Kansas style burn ends uh, or Texas brisket because I saw that on the food channel. Sure. You know, I was in a restaurant in Charlotte last night and it was just a really foodie kind of hipster place. Really cool. And uh, they had a smoked chicken on the menu that had Alabama white barbecue sauce, like of all places. Um, (laughs) And if you've ever had that, it's phenomenal. It really is. It's probably my favorite thing that we do. Um, But you're seeing it in Charlotte, North Carolina, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I think um, people are a little bit more open, even though we still have our regional best. And so I think that's a good thing for people to make a note about there. If you're thinking in terms of uh, you have a successful independent brand and it's time to grow, we don't have to think success is a national brand. Uh, There's so much success just to have right there in your, you know, in your backyard. It was incredible just a moment ago, Larry, talk about how you could probably be three or four times as large as you are. And you're already fairly large, you know, for an independent brand. Yeah. Not leave the cities you're in. So go figure. You know, we've spent some time on on different prototype size as well. I hate that word, by the way, prototype. We can delete that maybe. Different size restaurants for different size markets so that we don't run into a situation where we really want to go somewhere outside of Birmingham, but we can't because maybe the market's not quite big enough to support the size of business that we have. So we spent the last two years developing essentially three different size restaurants, one of which is an off-premise only. little It's drive-through and walk-takeout only. We haven't done one yet. Actually, we do have one, but we haven't done a new one yet um, because I think there's just so much opportunity to grow out the market, markets that you're in. They're markets that, that you know well. They're markets that you you've spent years building brand equity in their markets where you have leadership. So it's just a lot, I mean, there's a lot less risk. Um, and there's no reason, but I just don't think you have to have a one size cookie cutter restaurant that you just stamp out everywhere you go. You know, we, we hear that from a lot of the, um, the operators who are on a multi-unit expansion, perhaps not as, as, uh, as large as yours and a couple of things that we hear particularly from the younger um younger operators um you know in terms of their their planning strategy what they'd almost describe as organic well you know we're here at eight or nine and when we see the right opportunity for tim we'll do it it isn't it's not like i might have expected 25 years ago or i talked to some you know, hard charging young business person saying, yeah, we've got the, we've, we've figured out the garden of Eden on graph paper. And, and by year five, we're going to have this many operations. Right. And I was almost thinking, you know, Hey, th- you're a guy who's probably very analytical. He's you, you, you've got this five-year plan. You got this 10-year plan. Um, you're going to do everything by the book, by every unit. And then I'm hearing a much more flexible approach. Um, uh, expand that philosophy because you sure. you may be kind of like the the template for uh, independent multi unit expansion right now. I would think so. Mm-hmm. Well, for us, I think you know they're um, they're like I said, they're different size restaurants. Two of them are uh, all full channel, meaning we offer all full sales channels. They're about fifteen hundred square foot difference in size, and then the third is an off premise only. We like that one again for those small markets where. They're almost uh, connector markets between two other places that you would do business, two other cities that might be an hour, an hour and a half apart. But and you get these small towns or small cities are typically underserved uh, with restaurant seats. And it's an opportunity. Um, And, you know, I I think there's value in having a standard, you know, 
again, we use that word prototype again, um, because if you're trying to grow a lot or grow fast, to have to redesign a restaurant from scratch every time is it's a it's a long, expensive, painful process. But I think you want to keep some flexibility. So we've developed those those three different boxes, but we've also we're also uh, flexible to take on existing space into a conversion. We did one in Oxford, Alabama back in July. It's always, you always think it's going to be cheaper than it is because you're converting another restaurant and you've got a, you've got four walls and a roof. It's never as cheap as you think um, when you get into it. Um, And it's a little bit, you know, it's, it's a pain um, because you got to figure out how to make your, your business work in a different box. But I love that we, we wouldn't have been able to do that site without it. I love that we were able to, we we challenged the team. The team rose to the challenge. The restaurant's awesome. We're doing another one. We have another one under construction right now in Milton, Georgia, kind of uh, north of, uh, north of Midtown near Alpharetta. And it was a, it was a KFC. Um, So it was a 30, I don't know, 3,500 square foot KFC uh, that we're converting now. And so it's a little bit more brain damage to get it done. Uh, but you learn a lot of things along the way that you can apply to future uh, to future builds. So I, for us, I think the flexibility is critical. I think as we ramp up growth uh, more, I want to be careful that we don't take on too many of those, you know, call them passion projects because they take a lot of time and bandwidth from everybody involved. But each one of those that we do, and as we build more of kind of that standard box, we're learning a ton and we're, we're able to refine and get better each time. So I like the, the ability to be flexible. And I, I think it's, it's always risky to go into a new market and it's incredibly expensive to go into a new market because you've got to, you typically got to pay, you pay up a little bit more for the best real estate you can find as you should. You've got to get people hired in advance and you typically got to find the absolute best out there when you go into a new market because you can't afford to stub your toe. And it's not that I don't want to grow Jim and Nick's into a new market, but I don't want to do it until I don't want to do it when I don't have to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talking about learning and experience, um, uh, you know, as you know, the the national chains, they're keeping data on the numbers of every single unit. And if they see a certain region or certain units that just are underperforming, Compared to other units, they're going to try to figure out what's going on and they're going to send people in there and fix it. Um, I'm assuming you do a lot of comps between your units. Um, What do you learn regarding that process? Let's say a unit is underperforming or even better, one unit is just on fire and you want to figure out what are they doing that is making them so successful. Um, Does any of that make sense? Yeah, for sure. You know, the most common thing I found, and this isn't just at Jim and Nick's, but in my whole career, um, because I was, you know, I think about earlier times in my career when I was a regional manager or a GM, I was the guy that would, they would send in to fix those situations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I found more often than not, the restaurants that are most successful have a continuity in leadership, right? So they don't have a lot of GM turnover. They don't have management turnover. It's a stable team. They live in the market. They know their guests. So um, the restaurants that I've struggled with most, both, you know, prior to Jim and Nick's and even now are restaurants where you didn't quite get it right out of the gate because you didn't have the right leadership. Um, and, and you, again, you stubbed your toe a little bit. Um, it's hard to recover from that. Um, yeah. I think, and because there's also a culture that's getting created in that, in that business. And you want that culture to be, you know, consistent with and aligned with the company's culture, but it's its own living, breathing thing. And the restaurants I've seen that are most successful have a great leader at the GM level, have a really good management team. As a result, they have low management turnover. Like I said, they they live in the market. They know guests in the market. They have low team member turnover because there's consistency and predictability in the way the restaurant runs. So your hourly team member turnover is lower. And I just think I kind of, it's like you're, those restaurants are able to just kind of create some mojo. Um, and the ones that struggle with turnover, particularly at the GM level or chef level, are the ones that I think are tough to get traction in because you had you got to fix the business first and then you got to go fix your reputation. And that takes time. There we go with people again. You know, I was just thinking the same thing. <laughs> you know, you're going to sure. assess something that's poorly performing. It typically starts with people. Um, 
You know, Larry, I would love it to go to go back to how successful you are with understanding the market and having flexibility with size and design right. and type of building. Um, why don't you touch on how that maybe impacts marketing um, uh, as you get into different markets and you have some <clears throat> stores larger than others, some stores doing different things. Is your marketing, branding and PR centralized coming out of Birmingham or is it more adjusted by the community and community, more community involvement, or how does marketing work once you're as large as you are? Yeah, well, at first we're um, we're not huge, um, hugely invested in traditional marketing. I think we, we spend a lot of time um, to build the brand, and we re- we like to do organic PR, really be involved in the communities that we're in. So while those efforts are strategically or directed from a central location, they I never want them to feel like that. Um, I want them like I want every restaurant to feel like a one-off. Like it's the it's the one Jim and Nick's in that community, and there are no others. And if there are any others, those people don't care about it, you know. Um, so all all of our efforts, I you know, we're bigger fans of organic marketing. Um, even even the PR that we do, it's not you know when we open a restaurant and come to an area. I don't want to see a quote in a publication from me. I want to see a quote in a publication from the GM who lives in that community, mm-hmm. who's going to be the face that people see when they go there. Um, I kind of want, like, I want us to feel, I want us to feel small. You know, when we talked to Johnny Caraba, um, Chris, and, you know, we were talking, you know, success and failure, whether you have a thousand units or, or one <laughs> is always at the unit level. Um, yeah. In terms of community engagement, um, are there any any special efforts you make there in terms of, uh, you know, getting your people's faces in front of the locals? Oh, for sure. Yeah, we have we have a position inside the company that we have um, kind of community, you know, marketing or salespeople in each in each community that can help connect local managers with what's going on in the township. Um, I I personally really prefer to have a GM live in the city where the business is um, because I just think they, they become a part of the community. They're serving their neighbors, literally. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm a, just a huge proponent of that, especially as we, we talk about manpower planning a lot as we grow. Um, and as I said, it's so critically important to get the leadership right when you open a new restaurant. But what I don't want to do is just, you know, uh, platoon, talented people in to open and run a restaurant for a little while and then go somewhere else. That's, that's not a good play. My, my belief is let's find a great management team that wants to live in the community. um, And that uh, that'll be there to grow that business and to get to know people. And so I, I'm more of a fan of um, sort of organic field level marketing than I am centralized you know, corporate level marketing for us. Well, we've, we generally get around to the comp topic of sourcing when we have these conversations, but I'm real interested to hear about sourcing from the perspective of 38 unit barbecue concept. And in this particular economic environment. I am, uh, we are incredibly blessed with a very strong um, purchasing person. Um, mm-hmm. She's fantastic. Uh, so that helps, right? So they have somebody that really understands what they're buying and how to buy. She's incredibly well networked within the industry, and we help resort, give her resources, sort of consulting resources as well. And then, like, you know, being part of the work portfolio is pretty massive because they're obviously a really big organization. So there's great, there's just great uh, collaboration and, and idea sharing and stuff across their all their portfolio companies. So that's really helpful. Um, as much as we have a, a very talented person in that position, um, she, she's one person in that position. So um, it's too much for any one person to do. So to have those other resources uh, to help us make good decisions, uh, especially now, it's like, it's incredibly critical. I've never, in my 35 years in the business, I've never seen um, a, a, a commodities environment like the one we're in now. Usually you get pressure in one or two things and you get a little bit of benefit in the other and 
if you're reasonably crafty, you can re-engineer your menu a bit to focus on the things that are lower cost. Like it's hard. You can't do that today because everything's more expensive. Like there's a thing that you think you're getting a break on, you know? No. And I was thinking about that earlier in our conversation when you were talking about, you know, how successful you were able to convert to the, to not just having your to go, which is well-established, but then you added third-party delivery. And the fact that drive-through is over a third of your business, I'm thinking, where are you going to find paper and packaging because everybody's in trouble? Yeah. Oh, it was a bear. It's, it's gotten better now, but when it first, uh, probably a year ago, I mean, you can't find, you couldn't find to go bags. You can't find packaging. Like you're literally, you're going to, you're, you have to take what's available, whether you want to or not, and you're going to pay double for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it, that part is kind of leveled off for us a bit. And again, but we have the benefit of, uh, being part of a really big network um, inside of the Roar Capital Group, so that's really helpful as well. No, it's it's been a challenging environment. One, you know, one of the things that's really helped us kind of weather the storm from a from a product cost standpoint is um, when COVID hit, we streamlined the menu quite a bit. Um, we just looked at what what are we really selling a lot of, um, what are we not selling, what and um, how do we streamline that so that we can get better at doing the things that matter most to our guests? They're telling us what matter most to them because they're buying it. Um, and that streamlining helped us reduce waste and it helped us reduce labor costs. It wasn't, we didn't do that. It wasn't like by design to reduce food costs or labor costs. It was done to survive at the time. Um, and in retrospect, it's been really helpful because we, our food waste has gone down quite a bit. Um, we're, I believe we're more consistent with executing because we're just getting more repetitions on the, on the products that matter most. Um, and then there's been a labor cost reduction and our turnover has been great too, because I think the job is not, it's the job's not as much of a beat down, you know? Mm-hmm. Are you in a, a counter service environment or do you have full service, which means you're also working with tipped employees? Oh, that's a really good question. So we, we have both. Um, and so historically we've been, yeah, so historically we've been, uh, casual dining servers tipped the whole nine yards. We, uh, about, uh, two years ago, right at the onset of the pandemic, we toyed with the idea of migrating to a kind of a fast casual version of ourselves. And so we, we converted one restaurant because we wanted to learn, you know, one, how to do it and two, how our guests would accept it or if they would accept it. Um, and it went really well. We're really pleased with the result. We've since converted four other restaurants and we've opened two in what we call, we kind of internally, we call it fast casual plus because it's, it's not the traditional fast casual. And, and the way it's different is um, I guess orders at the counter. So we've installed a kind of an order encounter and created a queue line uh, for guests to order. Uh, but from there, they get their own beverage and seat themselves wherever they want. We bring food to them. So they're not kind of going down a cafeteria line um, and getting a platter full of food at the end. They sit. And then the rest of their experience is really a casual dining experience because we do have we do have uh, front of the house staff in the restaurant that will clear plates or pre-bus or, you know, refill beverages or get somebody a, another beverage if they'd like one. Um, and what we found is the experience is, uh, is much faster. And it's a lot, it gives people a lot more flexibility to be able to use the brand. And it's funny, I was wondering why it's faster. And I hadn't really thought about it a lot. And, you know, as I dine out more, you think about all the little times that you wait in a full service experience. Like you wait at the host stand, and then you wait to be greeted by your server, and then you wait to get water or bread brought to the table, and then you wait to place your order. Um, you've obviously got a ticket time, you wait for a check back, you wait to get packaging done or to get your check. Like when you add all that up, it really, it ends up, it could be 15, 20, 25 minutes of waiting time right. that is largely avoided um, in a fast casual experience. You have got a little bit of a queue line wait time. Um, but for us, um, barbecue is fast because your proteins are, you have to cook your proteins in advance because they take a long time right. to cook. So the t- a tick time in a check time in barbecues is incredibly fast. It's like four to six minutes. It's really fast. Um, so by the time a guest places their order, gets their beverage and finds their table, the food's coming out. Um, and at the end of the experience, you're not waiting for a check and then waiting to have the check process. So you've already paid at the register. So you're done. You can just get up and leave. So that's what we're growing now. Um, we, we've, like I said, we've converted a handful of restaurants. Um, 
And we're, we like the results of those conversions by and large, but we also want to be mindful of the fact that these are restaurants that have been operating as casual dining restaurants for 10, 20, in some cases, 25 years in the communities that we're in. And so we're, um, we're just, you know, cautiously, carefully making the decision to do one or two here and there. There's no burning desire to flip the whole company to fast casual today. Mm-hmm. Uh, beer and wine. Um, is that part yes. of the, okay. And full bar. Ter- yeah. full bar, in terms of the beer, um, I, I noticed independent barbecue restaurants, they often try to regionalize their beer selection. It's just part of the vibe. Is that something that um, you try to do in terms of uh, your uh, regional um, presentation? For sure. You know, there are some mainstream, you know, national beers that people just you sell sure. a lot of, whether it's, right. you know, it's Bud Light, Coors Light, whatever. Of course. Um, so we have those for those guests that want them. But then beyond that, um, we try to balance it out with, with regional favorites. So if your, our regional lineup of beers in Atlanta will be different from the regional lineup of beers in, in Nashville or Birmingham. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's part, again, that's also part of that. I don't want to feel like a national chain just right. came down and, and plopped a box down. Like I, I wanted to feel like it's part of the community and it's only, it's just the one, you know? Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, that's an excellent point. And it sounds to me like at every turn, that's exactly what you're doing. Flexibility in the building, uh, service style, regionalization of menu, beer and wine. You may have a lot of units, but you're certainly not going to look like you are a cookie cutter uh, chain. And, and I think that that's a wonderful thing. I think that there are so many points that you touched on that, um, that are just the foundation for any listener who's out there thinking that expansion is, is in their cards. So I hope people today took good note because there was a lot of pearls of wisdom in this conversation. I'm sorry to see it end, but time is running out. <laughs> yeah. You know, you said something I, I just want to touch on quickly. You, you mentioned, you know, wanting to grow and and the importance is it just in the next one. Like I, that would be something I would stress to anyone that wants to grow a company is don't think about growing three, four or five. Think about the next one and think about keeping the one you have or however many you have. Keep those healthy while you're growing the next one because you're never going to get to five, 10 or 20 more, however many more you want if the next one isn't awesome. You know, you know Chris and I, we've talked to so many uh, operators um, at all different stages to are on a path for multi-unit development. I really appreciate what you've been saying, Larry, because I, I kind of feel like we've, you've kind of given us really what the, the, the current future of multi-unit development is. Um, and, and it isn't cookie cutter. It isn't big five-year plans where you're going to, you know, say we're going to have five or six or seven or more, 10 more in the next period. It, it, and that regionality, that community, it, I, I really feel like um, I'm hearing this is what multi-unit development, at least successful multi-development is going to, that's the direction it's going to grow. I hope so. <laughs> that's where we're going. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. Well, Larry, that's Larry Ryback. It's Jim and Nick. So everyone that's listening, look them up. They're doing what they're doing well. And it's, it's, it's the right way to go. Larry, again, thank you for your time. We wish you continued success. <clears throat> You've made us tremendously hungry. I'm going to have to go find a pork. <laughs> guys, thank you so much. It's, it's been an honor and a pleasure to be here. And it's great to, to meet you guys and chat a bit. Thank you, Larry. For everyone else, we hope to see you again really soon on another Corner Booth. Thanks a bunch. Take care. Thank you for joining us on the Corner Booth. We'll be back next Tuesday with more inspiration, insights, and industry best practices to help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business.